Good morning. morning. Someone has said that to one who has an alert mind and a sensitive spirit, spirit, the world is a classroom. God is so good at giving us soberness in our thinking. And I'm so glad. And one of my constant prayers is, Lord, do not allow me to think more highly of myself than I ought to think. And do not allow me to think less of myself than I ought to think. But let me think soberly and righteously concerning who I am in your son, Jesus Christ. Well, as I was being greeted this morning, I was speaking to one of the, uh, the ladies here, and uh, I was expressing my gratitude that you all would be kind enough to hear me a second time. And, and I was uh, told that uh, one of the, the younger people here in your, your congregation is not able to be here in the sanctuary, but says she's serving in the nursery. And, uh, and she was so upset that she couldn't be in the sanctuary to observe my wife in worship. Uh, <laughs> And so I uh, you know, said, Lord, thank you for reminding me it's not about me. It is about you, and it's about our worship of you. And all of the preaching that we do should lead people to worship not the preacher, but God. To praise him, to, for us to not lift ourselves above anything other than simply a voice that the Lord is using to speak forth his truths so that we might know him, that we might love him, that we might serve him with all of our hearts, with all of our being. That's what it's about. It's not about the preacher. It is about Jesus Christ. And what you see here in the sanctuary within my wife happens at home. One of the things I have said to people on a number of occasions I get great joy in observing and hearing my wife worship at home. And that is a true delight to our God. And I'm so grateful that I'm able to witness that. We're going to be talking today from the passage of Scripture that was just read. Uh, The subject that we're using is the great commandment. The greatest revelation ever given to man is this. God is love. God is love. A sad day it was in the history of the Christian church when men began to teach the love of God and love for God as doctrines to be learned instead of realities to be experienced and enjoyed. How sad. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness, for your mercies, and your grace. Thank you for loving us, O oh God. Thank you for the provisions that you've made for every aspect of our lives, both for here and for all of eternity. Only a good God would do that. For surely we deserve nothing good from you, but you have delighted to lavish your love upon us. And Lord, may we walk in response to the love that you've poured out upon us by giving our love to you and by loving one another. And we thank you and we praise you in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Faith 
it has been said, in God through Jesus Christ makes all things possible. Hope in Christ, which is my confident expectation of good that flows out from the throne of grace, makes all things sunny and cheerful. Romans 5.5 5 says, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given us. Love for Jesus and for those around us make all things intensely sweet and extremely valuable. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Long before Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among men on earth, men related to God on the basis of his love. Consider, if you will, the man Joseph, who was a son of Jacob, who became Israel. He was a young man at the tender age when testosterones were naturally running high. And he was faced with the temptations of a woman who was probably very beautiful, who day after day said to him, lie with me. This man had been sold into slavery in a foreign land and was living away from his family. He had to learn a new language. And yet he thrived. And his response to this woman was, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? That was the response of love. From the reading of the text, this appears to have been his response to her from the very beginning, from the very first day. And he literally, after so many times of of, of appealing to him, he ran out of the house without clothes. And he must have been very humiliated, running down the street naked. And although he was wrongfully put in jail, His love for and confidence in God did not waver. She accused him of attempting to rape her, but that did not change his love for his God. Now, please keep in mind that the story of Joseph was more than 400 years before God gave the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel through Moses, which we talked about last week. And this causes us to keep those some third things in mind that are extremely important as we examine our text for today. The first thing I want us to consider is this, that there's more to religion than sacrifices. The Old Testament scriptures taught that there was more to the Jewish uh, faith than than burning lambs and, and rams and goats. 1 Samuel 15, 22 says, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. This was one who thought that by doing a religious thing that he was going to earn favor with God. But Samuel had to him to understand, no, number one is to obey God. And when you love God, you obey God. The psalmist writes in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, you don't want penance 
If you did, how gladly I would do it. You aren't interested in offerings burned before you on the altar. It is a broken spirit you want, remorse and penitence. A broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not ignore. A broken and a heart of humility is what God wants. Jeremiah 7, to 23 says, It wasn't offerings and sacrifices I wanted from your fathers when I led them out of Egypt. That was not the point of my command, but what I told them was, Obey me, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Only do as I say, and all shall be well. Hosea 6, 6 says this. This is God speaking again. I don't want your sacrifices. I want your love. I don't want your offerings. I want you to know me. Micah 6, 6 through 8, we find these words. How can we make up to you for what we've done, you ask? Shall we bow before the Lord with offerings of yearling calves? Oh, no. For if you offered him thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of olive oil, would that please him? Would he be satisfied? If you sacrifice your oldest child, would that make him glad? Then would he forgive your sins? The answer comes back, of course not. Verse 8 is one that we are so familiar with. We have a tendency to read all about, around uh, the, the verses that, that, that we zero in on certain verses and we forget about the other verses. Those verses are extremely important. Everything that God puts in the Bible is important. Here's the response to this. No, he has told you what he wants. And this is all it is to be fair, just, merciful, and to walk humbly with your God. The Bible is the story about God's creation of heaven and earth, about the crown of his creation, man, about man's fall and the curse that was placed upon the earth. And because of that, we find what is called the fall. But it's also about God's redemption of both man and all creation from that curse. History is his story about the complete restoration of his creation to the glory to which he made it in the beginning. There are wonders about God's dealings with man that holy angels, as powerful as they are, are totally unable to understand from an experiential standpoint. God's grace is an aspect of his love. This is something the angels will never, ever experience. The only way they can even come close to understanding it is that they observe it in the church of Jesus Christ. May I remind us all that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. Kenneth Weiss said that the church of Jesus Christ is God's university for angels. And the primary subject is grace. 
The angels already understand God's omniscience. They understand his wisdom. They understand his infinite power. Their former fellow angels, the ones who fail, are experiencing God's wrath and his power right now, but they will never, ever experience his grace. They will never be redeemed. Taking a little liberty as inspired by Dr. Weiss, one angel said to another, I'd like for you to explain to me this thing called grace. And uh, one says, you see Joyce over there? You know what she used to be. And look at her now. She's in the arms of God. That's grace. And a week later says, you know, I know we talked about this thing called grace, but I'd like you to explain it to you one more time. Say, okay, I'll tell you what. Look at Thomas back there. You, you see Thomas. You know the life Thomas used to live. But, but, but now look at him. He's all up in Jesus' arms. That's grace. And another week goes by and says, now I know we've discussed this thing before, but I'd like you to explain grace to me one more time. He says, look at Donald. You know, you, you know how, how terrible he used to be. And the angel says, what do you mean used to? He ain't so good now. And yet he is all up in God's arm. God is wrapping up in his arm and, and just lavishing his love upon him. That's grace. The angels can never experience that. You and I are the only beings that God created that can experience that. And to that we say, praise God. Praise God. Hmm. This is why so often, and I may have mentioned this last week, that, and by the way, you know, I realize there's going to come a time when I'm going to repeat myself and I won't know that I'm repeating myself. <laughs> That's coming, and it's coming pretty quickly too, you know. But right now, I know I'm not pre-repeating myself. I, I, I've said many times that when people greet me and they ask me, how am I doing? My original response is, I'm doing better than I deserve. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not just a catchy phrase that I say. Now, I granted, granted that uh, probably two decades ago, I picked it up from a man named, um, and doing my mind here, Dave Ramsey. And some of you are not familiar with the name Dave Ramsey. He's constantly saying, I'm doing better than I deserve. Well, you know what? Reading the scriptures, I come to realize I'm doing better than I deserve. And you know what? So are you. Sobering thought, isn't it? But that's reality. The scripture says, for he is not doubles according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And may I remind you, only a good God would do that. Only a God who's abundant in mercy would do that. You see, God's mercies are never deserved. His grace, by the very definition of the word, can never be earned. And God has lavished both of them upon me and upon you. 
God, in his grace, doesn't just bestow upon us goodness that we don't deserve. He bestows upon us the very opposite of what we do deserve. Whereas our text deals with the commandment for us to love God, I have chosen to open with God's love for us. Why? It is because all that we are and all that we do is to be a response to God's love. From the creation, God has operated on the basis of love. As the Apostle John says, we love because he first loved us. And remind ourselves, as Paul says in Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. I beseech you on the basis that God's been good to you. And so all that we do is to be a response to God's love. In our text for today, a question is put to Jesus by one who's deemed to be very knowledgeable of the law. He presented a question about the ranking of the importance of the laws. And since status and ranks were very important to them, it seemed only natural that there were certain commandments that were more important than other commandments. Moses gave 10 commandments, but the Jews had adopted 613 248 of the precepts were positive and 365 were presented as negatives. Now, mind you, all of the commandments that the the Jews were walking in did not necessarily come from God. They had actually set up man-made laws in order to keep from breaking God's laws. And John MacArthur calls those fence laws. There was a law that says that a woman could not look in a looking glass or a mirror on the Sabbath. Why? Because she would be tempted to wash her face. And if she washed her face, then she was breaking the Sabbath because that was work. There was another one that said that, that you know what, you, you could only eat a, an egg that the chicken laid on the Sabbath if you kill the chicken after eating the egg. No, it doesn't, didn't make sense to me either. But there are so many things that people put up thinking that they're making themselves presentable to God, and God is the only one who can make us presentable unto himself. This is why he sent his son, Jesus Christ. Because you and I could never make it on our own. And by the way, you know, I could, I've just been reading so much, I could just spend a whole day talking about the Sabbath. Just what God has done for us. But I'm going to get past that. I do want to say this. That we think in terms of this, can I do this and can I do that and can I not do this? There are people who are constantly trying to live on the edge to go as far as they can on the edge and still be a Christian. There is a danger in separating the commandment from the one who makes the commandment. Let me repeat that. It is very dangerous to separate the commandment from the one who gave the commandment in the first place. You see, we need to understand it as James gives us in James chapter 2, starting at verse 10. It says, failure to obey any one of God's commands makes us worthy of eternal separation from God. Consider a man who is challenged or who challenged himself to walk across Niagara Falls on a chain 
And no, he's not walking on his feet, but he's walking hand over hand across. And all of a sudden, a link breaks, and you know what happens. Gravity takes over. And when people talk about that, they don't say, hmm, a link broke. They say the chain broke. And so James says, if you keep all the laws except one, and then you offend in only one law, you're guilty of the whole law. But whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he says, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, and this is the key, he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And so, when we did disobey in any one of God's commandments, we're guilty of all. How many of Adam's sins are recorded in the Bible? I'm aware of only one. Now, maybe there's some theologians out there who've read the Bible more intensely than I have, and I don't, I'm not doubting that. Please know that I'm not putting myself up here. But I'm only remembering one recorded sin of Adam. It wasn't murder. It wasn't fornication. It wasn't robbery. It wasn't adultery. It wasn't lying. It wasn't failure to honor father, a mother. But, but, but wait, yes, he did dishonor his father, his heavenly father. He disobeyed him. He disobeyed him. And so it only took one offense to get the world on a path to the mess that we find ourselves in today. Only one. And it caused a separation. And so, what is Jesus talking about when he's talking about loving the Lord? Keep this thought in mind. God is glorified the most in those who find the greatest delight in him. It's not in what God provides. It's not in the car. I remember meeting someone, oh, a year or two ago, and he was talking about he came to Jesus, and that the only thing he could talk about was that God gave him a Lamborghini. That's the only thing he kept talking about. God gave me a Lamborghini. He did not talk about anything about his relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not talk about anything about the being forgiven of all of his sins. And I'm not judging, but he was living out of wedlock with a woman at that point. But God is glorified when we find our delight in him. The psalmist says in Psalms 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. To delight in God is to delight in his word. You know, I remember when I was a young man and Joyce and I had been married for a couple of years and I was working a, what I call a secular job at that time since I've learned that 
It was not a secular job. I was simply a, a Christian working in that particular company, you know, for that company. So I was representing Jesus Christ wherever I go. And whatever job you do, if you're in Christ, you're representing the Lord Jesus Christ in that job. But I was working hard because I was, wanted to get ahead and, and I was finding, found myself bringing work home from the office. And after dinner, I would excuse myself and I would go to another room and where we had a desk and I would be working on things for, that I was getting ready for the next day. And this went on for a while. And, and one night, Joyce came in the room and she said, and I tell you what, where she got this wisdom, only that God would give her this wisdom. She said, Donald, I want you to know something. I love you. And I am so grateful that you are working as hard as you can to earn a good life for us. But there's something I need you to remember. When I married you, I married you and not your paycheck. Wow. Wow. I married you and not your paycheck. What am I saying? There are many people who are trying to do things for God. Just like he said to the people in the Old Testament, it's not your burnt sacrifices I'm looking for. I'm looking for your heart toward me. I'm looking for your love of me or your love for me. And many have missed that. We get so caught up in what we call a vocation And I may have said this last week, Jesus never asked us to be committed to a cause. He wants us to be committed to him. And by the way, my wife has told me a number of times, she says, you never have to worry about whether I married you for your money because when I married you, you didn't have any. (laughs) We were poor. We were poor. Oh, I tell you, we were, did I say we were poor? (laughs) Uh, Let let me tell you, can I just, this is not in my notes, so I'm not going to charge you for this. (laughs) And and my wife says, I'm going to get in trouble saying that one day because people are going to think I charge for my sermons and I don't. (laughs) But, But we were so poor that when we had paid what little bills we could pay, and, and we found ourselves behind a few times. We didn't have that many, but it was difficult keeping those up. We'd buy what groceries we could buy. I would give my wife a quarter. Now, there are some kids that if you would give them a quarter, hmm? <laughs> what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> you know, yes, I gave my wife a quarter. That's all I could. I remember when she was pregnant, we got pregnant, and she didn't have any clothes that would fit her. Well, I went and bought her a dress. She took it back. She said, you can't afford it. She says, if you give me a little money, I'll buy some fabric, and I'll make myself some dresses. And that's what we did. I couldn't afford to buy her a dress. I bought it when I couldn't afford it, but she knew I couldn't, and her love says, I'm not going to take this dress. 
and what is a better way. That's love. That's love. This is why today, and I don't mean to imply that I can do a lot, if I think my wife wants something, I will do whatever I can to get it for her. Because here's a woman who is sacrificed, who has shown that she loves me, and I praise her. I praise God for her. What a jewel. Our number one duty is to love God. Our number one duty is to love God. Hear, O Israel, Jesus said in response to this man. Here is, it is expressed in the word hear, H-E-A-R. Faith comes by hearing, says the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. Hearing Jesus takes them back in history when he recites the words of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel. And what is he doing? He is inviting them to reflect on the significance of the truth which he is about to give them. When Moses spoke these words, it was called to the people, a call to the people to hear, and not only to hear, but to obey what was about to be said. And so he says, the Lord our God is one. Our God is the one and only true God. Yahweh was not to be viewed as one among many gods, as the people around them viewed their pagan gods. Those were not true gods. There was none like Yahweh. He is the covenant-keeping God, which we talked about last week. Psalm 96.5 says, For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And so we are to worship our God in him and him alone. What is worship? William Temple said, to worship is, first of all, to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. Our appreciation for the grace of God is only to the degree that we understand and appreciate the holiness of God. To quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. Secondly, to feed the mind with the truth of God. Not the world's truth, but God's truth. To purge the imagination by the beauty of God. To open the heart to the love of God. And to devote the will to the purpose of God. These are words given by William Temple. John Piper says, Worship is a way of gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of his worth. And so worship is supreme adoration which results in imitation. The late Henry Ironside said, he who loves God supremely will not willingly dishonor him in anything. Now, here's a heresy of today. God will not hold it against someone because of who they choose to love. May I suggest that one should reconsider that. We have to consider the priorities of love. If God is not the primary focus of our love, he will hold it against us. Yes, he will. Our love for anything or anyone else that places the object of that love above or even equal to our love for God is tantamount to idolatry. And so God does, will, will hold it against us. If I seek to live out my Christianity on the edge, I've adopted an idol which I want to hold on to while trying to hold on to Jesus. I have accepted Jesus as my Savior and my ticket out of hell, but I have not made him my treasure. And Jesus wants to be our treasure. 
one of the tests that uh, you are the truly saved is your love for Jesus. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will. And this is a note to those who are merely religious. Did you know that you can live what is considered to be a good moral lifestyle? Go to church every Sunday, pay tithes, and even teach Sunday school and preach and still go to hell. I need to say that one more time. You can live what is considered to be a good moral lifestyle, go to church every Sunday, pay tithes, teach Sunday school, and even preach and still go to hell. I got that on good word. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy or preach in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So if God is not your love, you need to rethink. You need to take a step back. If God is not your number one, I know many of us have made our wives or our husbands our number one, that is out of order. God is our number one. My wife is my number two, and she's happy about it. I'm her number two, and I'm happy about that. God is our number one. And so Jesus says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength, with your whole heart that is the center of your being, with all your soul, an emphatic designation of the person, with all your mind, your faculty of thought and understanding, your intellect, with all your strength. In essence, you shall love the Lord your God completely and wholeheartedly with all that you are in the totality of your being. It's what we're, and, and that's not a suggestion, that's a commandment. And when we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, it produces certain things. There's a passion that rises up in our lives because passion for God produces delight in God. Passion for God produces delight in his word. The psalm writer said, Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates every now and then. No, I, I, I misquoted that on purpose. He meditates on his, in his law day and night. Day and night. You know, God told David, or was told, uh, he said of David, rather, He's a man after his own heart. But when David sinned, here's what God says in 2 Samuel 12. Why have you despised the Lord or the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? This is what the prophet said. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? And in verse 10 
God says to him through the prophet, you have despised me. We don't like to think about that, do we? But in reality, you see, this is a reality check for me and it's a reality check for all of us. Jesus said in John 14, 23 and 24, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will, we will come to him and make our bowl with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Have you heard people that decided that, well, they don't want to be a part of a certain church because they're just plain too strict? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's really about our loving the Lord. It's about how much do we really, really, really love the Lord. Love for God not only produces a passion for his word, love for God produces a passion for his glory. So what is the chief end of man has been asked. It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. I heard someone explain, says, that don't get caught up on that conjunction. I believe it was John Piper. says, don't get caught up on that conjunction and look at that as two separate things. Glorify God and enjoy him in the same way that you could have ham and eggs for breakfast, as if you can have ham one day and eggs the next day when one without the other. No, they go together. And so he says, in reality, the way we look at that is that to glorify God by enjoying him forever. By enjoying him forever. And this is a sad thing. And I don't know who is watching online. I don't know whoever, but it breaks my heart when I see people who don't want to have anything to do with Jesus in this life. And then when they die, the relatives want to put him in heaven. If you don't want to have anything to do with Jesus in this life, what makes you think that you're going to enjoy spending eternity in his presence? We need to rethink and consider where we are. Love for God produces a passion for his glory. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God by enjoying him forever. In the 1700s, there lived a man by the name of David Brainerd. Brainerd was a missionary to the Indians in New Jersey in the 1740s. He had a passion for the Lord's glory. These are the last words he had the strength to write with his own hand just one week before his death. And by the way, I believe his, he died at the age of 29, and he had serious, serious illnesses, uh, health problems, and it was said that at one point that, that on one of his missionary journeys that he fell off his horse and he laid for days. But still he had a passion for the Lord's glory. And this is what he wrote. On Friday, October 2nd, my soul was this day at turn sweet set on God. I longed to be with him that I might behold his glory. Oh, that his kingdom might come in the world, that they might all love and glorify him for what he is in himself, and that the blessed Redeemer might see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. 
this man had a passion for God's glory. Love is the motive for keeping all of God's commandments. Israel was to live in the light of God's love. They were to rejoice in the hope of his covenant promises. They were to joyously and faithfully live in obedience to his commandments. And all of this was in light of who God is. But then Jesus says something else in response to this man's question. He says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus taught us to love even our enemies. In Matthew 5, 45 through 48, he gives us the reason, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. If I stop attending worship services with my faith community because of my resentment of someone in my church, what does this say about me? I feed an idol within myself, and that idol is called resentment. And someone has said, and I'm sure you've heard this, that that resentment and hatred is like drinking poison and waiting for your neighbor to die. Love one another is what defines us as belonging to Jesus. Jesus doesn't want to wear a badge, not just to say that we are Christians, but he wants the world to know that we belong to him. And he did not say that if you carry a large Bible in your hand, or if you quote scripture all day long, that people will know that you belong to me. No, he said, if you love one another, and love is action, love is action. It is always action. And when you look at the word love in 1 Corinthians 13, it's really spoken of in terms of a verb more than a noun. And so it's love so much as not what it is, but what it does. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Although loving our neighbor was not confined to New Testament, Jesus, like no one else, emphasized the interrelationship between love for God and love for our fellow man as being essential. He demonstrated that both of these are essential. And then he went on in various passages to define what loving our neighbor really looks like. By the way, may I say this, and I'm almost done. There's nothing in Scripture that commands me to love myself. And I have had conversations with people and talking about the importance of loving your neighbor, loving your neighbor, and immediately so, much, so many will come back and say, well, you have to love yourself first, and there's nothing in Scripture that commands me to love myself. It is a given. As a matter of fact, one of the issues that we have in our lives is that we love ourselves more than we ought to. We love ourselves more than we love God. We love ourselves more than we love our wives, or our husbands. And that's one of the problems that we face in many in life. And so it's not a matter that we are 
have a problem loving ourselves. And let me say this in, very, in, in sympathy. There are people with issues, and I want to make sure that it is understood that my heart goes out to people who are facing issues and have been beaten down, have been told that they're worthless and that they're no good and they're never going to amount to anything. And, and if so many things have been said to them in a, in, a, in, a, in a derogatory manner that they become so depressed. And I realize I get that. That is a real problem in our society. And you need to know that God loves you no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what kind of life you have lived. God's love is sufficient. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, so that he could satisfy his justice on your behalf, so that he could forgive every sin that you've ever committed. That's how much God loves you. And he wants you to spend eternity with him. And he's done everything that needs to happen so that that could take place. He's not saying do all kinds of things in order to earn your way. He's saying, no, I have already provided the way and the way is my son. And so you need to know that God loves you. But I do say once again that the commandment is not for us to love ourselves. It is to love God and to love our fellow man. And so with this, as a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, in writing to Timothy, and he warned, he says, one of the things that will characterize the end of the times is that men will become lovers of self more than lovers of God. That is the warning that the Apostle Paul gives. Lovers of self more than lovers of God. So here's the question that I have for myself. What is it about me, my thoughts, my attitude toward others, and the things I do or the things I don't do that clearly demonstrates to those around me that I belong to Jesus? What is about me, my thoughts, my priorities, my actions, what is it about me that clearly shows the world that I belong to Jesus? Is it exegeting scripture? Absolutely not. It is, is it quoting scripture all day? It is absolutely not. Is it carrying a Bible in my hand? It is not. It is the love that I show to my fellow man, which is prompted by my love for the creator of us all. And so the question that I ask myself, how is my love life? For the Lord has caused me to understand that if my horizontal relationships are not in order, then neither is my vertical relationship. If my horizontal relationship is not in order, neither is my vertical relationship. And I need to keep it in line. Thank you for, once again, giving me a hearing. Thank you for allowing me to share with you from God's word. And I pray that the Lord will fill you with his peace and with his joy.